Hey everybody, welcome back to the Punk Till I Die podcast with your heroes Tom and Neil. How you doing, Neil? I'm doing good, and man, do we have a show for people today? <laughs> well, yeah, and uh, we have a we have a guest that I've been kind of working on getting for a very long time. You guys know that I'm a big uh, fan of the Detroit proto punk stuff, and uh, today's guest it, it goes back. He's been part of literally Michigan music stuff for 50 years and while you might not necessarily recognize the name he's rubbed elbows with a lot of people that you certainly know very well his name is uh hiawatha bailey he was the lead singer for a band called the cult heroes he was the minister of defense for the white panthers which were sort of a radical political party based in ann arbor um yeah a lot of the stuff to to put it into reference he uh the 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 head of the white panthers was a guy named john sinclair who uh and uh who got busted and it, it's just it's it's a fascinating story and i i think when you hear hiawatha talk about it you'll probably even want to learn learn more about it. it's just really interesting stuff he's a guy who kind of you know went through not only the hippie movement but sort of into the punk movement and it's just it's i, I don't know i found it fascinating stuff i hope you all enjoy it as much as we did dude the stories are incredible and even though a lot of you might not even be aware of the White Panther Party or who John Sinclair is, he was the manager of MC5 for a while. Yeah, so there's he was lot, manager of MC5. Yeah, yeah, so there's lots of MC5 stories. There's lots of those early um, you know, fucking, you know, dodging the Vietnam draft, for God's sakes. I mean, he gets into all this stuff. It's absolutely fascinating. And then, you know, the last half hour, he talks about some of his punk stories, too. He's got incredible stories about Didi Ramone and about Joey Ramone and Hank playing CBGBs and just all it, it is it's an incredible ride and hopefully you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed doing it right tom yes it was it was a lot of fun and intermittently there will be the music and they've recorded some quite a bit of music over the years they got they're one of those bands where you know the seven inches go for big money from the late 70s and early 80s so intermittently we're going to play some cult hero songs you get a feel for what his band was like you know it might be interesting at some point to go through and do more of the like detroit stuff in general but for this this time we'll kind of limit it to cult hero songs so check it out it's real real good stuff you know kind of rock and rolly punk rock type type stuff but i think i think you'll enjoy it i don't think so. we ever played any mc5 on the show before either so maybe we'll throw an mc yeah maybe throw an mc5 song yeah we can put mc5 and so uh studio song mc5 song that's yeah so yeah sounds good anyway so hey and enjoy yep enjoy so Hiawatha, you grew up. You were born in the South. Uh, when did you move up to Michigan? Well, I was born in Columbus, Georgia, at my parents' house, myself and my sister Gwen. <clears throat> and then um, we moved to Detroit to Hamtramck, actually, the year that I turned one. Oh, so you don't remember? You've always lived in Michigan your whole life. Oh yeah, you know, went to Catholic school and. Hamtramck. I went to Kosciuszko Elementary after St. I don't even remember. I think it was St. Vladislav or something when I was a, a little one, you know. And then from Catholic school, we uh, moved to the east side of Detroit. And uh, my dad was working at Chevrolet Gear and Axel, so by the nun, the mother superior, who came to the house and told my parents that with their permission, she could beat me into a good God-fearing Christian. <laughs> wow, wow. 
<laughs> so so, what, so when... how did that work out for him? How did that work out for you? <laughs> uh, well, my when my mom told me that, I said, well, what, what did you tell that lady? And she goes, uh, well, of course, you were always very difficult to condition, I love it. <laughs> so we so, gave her our permission. So what are we talking? Uh, are we talking uh, this the 1950s or 60s or what? Well, um, I was born in 48, so that would have been the early 50s early or middle 50s. 50s. Okay, cool. Yeah. And, and those nuns were horrible. Uh, I used to... On the way to Catholic school, in order to avoid, you know, going, I would. By the time we walked from my house on the east side over to um, to the Catholic school, I would be out of uniform because, uh, you know, I knew it was to come. It was <laughs> very scary, <clears throat> you know, very scary for a little one. Yeah, no shit. Did yeah. did, did you? Uh... No, sorry. Go ahead. Her idea of punishment was to bring you up to the blackboard. You had to put your fingers in the chalk trial, and then she had this pointer, this circular wooden pointer thing. She roll up your pant legs, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, beat you on your calves. Wow! With it so it show a scar or anything, you know, it didn't show anything when you went home. And, I back then always thought I was always doing something scandalous, so I thought it was the Lord way of punishing me, you know. <laughs> only the nuns do. <clears throat> so you had you had a bunch of brothers and sisters. You had a big family. Did you were you guys a musical family? I mean, was there always music in the house when you were growing up? Well, there was always music in the house. There was always actually music in the neighborhood. You know, I mean. Uh, you could hear Motown blasting or whatever was on the radio. You could hear up and down the streets, you know. Back then, uh, Detroit was more communal, you know. You sure. had like, uh, like B-Way would border on one side, Canfield the other side. And in between, there would be all nationalities of families, and everybody would take care of each other's kids, you know. So, um um, the music that I heard back then was just music that would be blasting out of people's windows and off the radios and cars, and, you know. But as far as my family was concerned, they were pretty straight-laced. My dad worked at Chevrolet Gear and Axle, and my mom was a housewife, a 50s housewife, you know. Sure. So, Chance to be 
So, so just to, just to be clear for anybody who might not know, your background is you're African American and American Indian, I believe, right? Right. And so was that was that was the Catholic school very integrated? I just think of Catholic schools as being like at least nowadays, Catholic schools would be lily white. It was was it pretty well integrated we were, at that point? No, it wasn't. We were one of the first black families to you know to go there, which was white. <clears throat> the nun thought it would be really asshole or she could beat me into a good God-fearing Christian. (laughs) Lady, you scare me. Nobody else in the world is walking around with that weird thing on their head. (laughs) Like shit. (laughs) She was real strange in terms of, uh, you know, she used to keep me after class and I didn't tell my mom this until years later after, you know, years, years later. And I said, do you know what that lady used to do when she would keep me after class? My mom goes, well, it's because. And I said, mom, she used to make me sit underneath her desk and she would hike her skirt tails and I'd sit underneath there and stare into the abyss. What? Until, Is that right? <laughs> Good God, oh, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know. And, of course, I thought that was my punishment for doing whatever got me in trouble in the first place, so I never volunteered that <laughs> to my parents, you know. I thought that was wow. the Lord punishing me. Wow. Yeah. Just, yeah, just a slightly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that could work. work so how come out since then about the Catholic Church and all of the pedophilia and weirdness that goes on there, you know. Those people were pretty free-range back then. Wow. <laughs> so you, were, you, were you there just through uh, junior high school, or did you were you doing that for high school as well? Oh, no, that was like, um, let me think now. Went to nursery school, then Catholic school, then Detroit public school, Mm. uh, after Catholic school. And then, uh, you know, as we moved from Hamtramck to the east side of Detroit. um, And then, uh, you know, after that, my dad, I was getting in trouble and stuff. And my dad came home from work one day and went, you know, you got three choices. You can move to Saginaw with my uncle, who was the head of the juvenile branch of the Saginaw Police Department, <laughs> military school, or the country. 
And he said, let me know by the time I come home from work tonight, which of the three you choose. I was like, oh, good. So I'm thinking Tom Sawyer, white picket fences, the country. So I chose the country. Hmm. And we moved from the east side of Detroit prior to the riots out to Belleville, which is where I went to high school at, middle school and high school. Tom, do you know so, do you know where Belleville is, Tom? Have, have you? I sure do. I you had do? a I have a I had an uncle that lived a different uncle than the one uh, Hiawatha knows that lived in Belleville. It's very much. I remember every house had the same pool. It was very much suburban when I went there, but that would have been in the nineties. Um, well, yeah, you guys. That was, but, but when I was there, it was like you know, if you weren't in the house when the sun went down, you were out there with all those weird sounds. I, I never <laughs> forget. I, Ripple sold shoes on once, and my dog Pudgy and my mom said, "You know, I'm locking the door when the sun sets. So whatever you do, you better be in the house when the sun goes up." Took off walking, and all these pebbles were getting caught in my Ripple sold shoes. And I thought somebody was after me, so I would just <laughs> my dog home Pudgy, and she'd take off towards the house. I ran through the screen door about two or three times. You know, I mean. <laughs> I was from the city. I was a city boy, and now I'm in the country, and things are a lot different. Yeah, scary. <laughs> yeah, way scary. And plus, when the sun goes down, I mean, you're in the dark. True. There's so, no street in Detroit, the rules were when the street lights came on, you had to be in the house. In the country, when the sun went down, you had to be. But I. Be out being on nature full and being chased by snakes and <laughs> listening to frogs trying to catch things in the woods. So you got but, see, um, no, sorry, go ahead. What? No, you. I was going to say, so the country life didn't suit you fine. So once you got out of school, you found yourself drifting towards Ann Arbor. Well, that's, yeah, that's kind of where you've been I, since, right? Well, the church, the first missionary Baptist church was right across the street from our house. Hmm. Still is. And uh, we had the key to the church. So I was elected president of the junior choir, and that was where I began singing at. Oh, no kidding. Okay. In Baptist church. And as a matter of fact, my voice changed while I was in the middle of one of my solos once. And I was like, <laughs> what is going on? Because I could hit that note before then, but as my voice changed, and my sister was behind me in the alto or soprano row, and she pick up the notes that I drop as my voice. <laughs> you know, what is going on? So, you know, that was like my rite of passage through puberty and stuff happened in the country, which is a good place for a knucklehead like me as I look back. <laughs> you know. So how was, and, uh, how, how was high school for you out there? Was it all right? Well, Belleville High School was... Uh, Lily White, when we moved out, and uh, most of the factory workers and people of my uh, genus were, uh, you know, people thought it was like, there was a railroad track before you got into downtown Belleville, and it was Lily White on one side of the track, and then factory workers, uh, black factory workers from the south, on the opposite side of the tracks where my parents lived at, so... Um, the annexation of the two systems brought up the athletic scores of the Belleville High School system. <laughs> there you all, go. Of, uh, all of the Mandingos that were running back and, you know, 
stuff. So they go, well, this isn't that bad after all. But it was predominantly white, the hell it was back then, and uh, until we got annexed in. So, and then through high school, done with high school now. Go ahead. No, I was going to say. Then you, I would say, what's next? You're done with high school. You, I know. I, I know. Eventually, you found your way to Ann Arbor. This has been. Well, it's, yeah. It's, you know, one of, one of the things that's interesting about your story is that you kind of spanned two like major movements, like social movements or musical movements, because you were essentially kind of hit Ann Arbor like in the peak of the the hippie movement, right? Yeah. Prior to that, you know, there was like. Life magazine came out with this article, you know, uh, everybody was, you know, psychedelic was the new word, you know. Mm. I, I, what the heck does that mean? I looked it up, open mind, you know, and everybody was, instead of basketball and football and all of that madness, people were, uh, you know, starting to smell flowers and Vietnam War was going on mm. prior to me graduating from high school and um, our home ec teacher, one of my classmates, dropped out, joined the military, and wound up getting sent back in a body bag from, you know, the first, from the Vietnam War. And uh, our high school um, home ec teacher um, said, you know, she was heartbroken, we all were. And she goes, you know, I'm going to tell you guys something, you know. When you register um, to get your social security card, they also send your information into the draft board. So in order to avoid the draft, just don't register for a social security card. Hmm. And I thought, wow, that's neat. But, you know, back then, too, if you were, you would get a letter, uh, a telegram in the mail. So I get this telegram one day, and I said, um, it was like greetings from Uncle Sam. And I said, hey, Mom, do we have an uncle named Samuel? <laughs> <laughs> no, why? And I said, well, listen, I just got this in the mail today. And it was a draft notice. And the draft notice stated that I was 1A, which meant, you know, slated for the draft. And mm. You had to go to these induction centers and drop your pants and stand in line and get the hernia test and the whole nine yards and we were all coming up with different ways to to get out of the draft like staying up for two or three days or putting a silver dollar under your arm before they took your blood pressure and your blood pressure would come up too high to make you ineligible or do like he did and put uh, creamy peanut butter in his underwear and when they said that he dropped him and reached in his underwear and whipped out some creamy peanut butter and licked it. And they went, get him out of here. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I didn't try that. But, you know, I tried everything else. But at the same time, Life magazine came out with this article on hippies. And it showed the progression of a normal person. And then over the course of a few months, what a normal person looked like once they became a hippie, you know, long hair, disheveled, and, you know, and I thought, wow, that looks really cool. And 
also in that article, they were talking about household highs, things around the house that you could use to get high, you know. Watch out if your kid is, like, drinking nutmeg tea, and which I tried. I was smoking corn silk from the fields and all kinds of stuff. Cause, and then all of a sudden there was this article in the Detroit Free Press uh, about a love-in at Belle Isle. And uh, it's, this was before the Detroit riots, but a love-in at Belle Isle, and it was sponsored by John Sinclair and Trans Love Energies. And I thought, wow, that looks like a lot of fun. But um, as we went down, me and a bunch of other guys uh, that I went to high school with went down for it, and we didn't make it across the Belle Isle Bridge because the Detroit cops decided they were having none of it. And they were on horseback and just beat us back across the bridge. And I went, well, that ain't going to work. So then I heard about um, Ann Arbor. And I thought, wow, there started to be free concerts in Ann Arbor at West Park. And um, I went up, heard the MC5. It was the MC5, the Stooges, and the Up were playing. And... This was before they played in the band show. It was just in one of the little pavilions with the bathrooms and stuff, you know. Mm. So uh, I thought, wow, there are people with chicks with no bras, guys with no <laughs> bell bottoms, incense, joints. I thought, this is what I want.
and I uh, had tried to get a 2S deferment by going to Washtenaw Community College, the year of its first incarnation. And that was not my cup of tea either. You know, I thought this is kind of weird. But I had classes with a four-hour oil painting course with uh, (laughs) McClatchy. And one of um, my co-students was Steve Carell from The Rationals, um, a really popular band back then, too. Um, They had a hit song with Aretha Franklin's Respect. As a matter of fact, Aretha recorded Respect after she heard their version of it. Huh, interesting. Yeah, you know, and uh, I was, Steve Carell was like, you know, he'd come to class after gigs. And I'd, uh, I think, wow, this guy looks really interesting, bell bottoms and smelling like the night before when, you know, um, back then (laughs) bands would be playing at the teen clubs and teen clubs would be, um, most strip malls would have a teen club in it. So I started following those guys around and uh, that was also a precursor to my music uh, interest and stuff. Music was always integral to to change and and an alternative lifestyle, you know? Sure, yeah. So, well, I'm kind of rambling. So no, 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 no. So no, how great. does that lead to, so I assume this leads to the White the white Panthers sometimes. How, how did you get involved with the White Panthers? And... Well, um, like I said, the MC5 and the Up and the Stooges were playing uh, uh, at these free concerts that were held in the park. Yep. And, you know, I just drive from Belleville to Ann Arbor and follow the sound of the music. And uh, slowly but surely, those guys had to leave Detroit during the riots because uh, Warner Stringfellow in the Detroit Police Department wanted to eradicate them when they were trans love energies, which was a commune of poets and musicians. Mm-hmm. And so when the riots broke out, they, the cops figured this is prime time. We can get rid of those hippies over there, too. So John and those guys got really scared after that. Um, that was when John got busted for possession of two joints. Sebby so John Sinclair, Neil, the yeah. founder of the White Panthers. Yeah. Right. The rest of the members of Trans Love Energies, which was his commune in Detroit, uh, moved to Ann Arbor and moved into 1510, 1520, and 1522 Hill Street. And uh, we would, I, by that time, had, you know, dropped out of school and, you know, was walking around barefoot and stuff and looking in the bushes. My dad, who was always sneaking up on me and stuff, I mean. <laughs> He always knew where I was at, you know. I'd be in, we moved into this house uh, on, uh, on South University. And when I was driving past it one night, I thought, wow, look at that. There was three floors, and the guy that owned it dropped acid, lost his mind, went to Mexico. And uh, his parents were very wealthy corporate uh, execs that had purchased the house for him, and he was supposed to be the house manager. Well, when he got high and decided he was going to go seek Nirvana, this house is 
business left, and so all of these hippies moved in, and nobody paid the rent. We thought, hey, this is it. This is special. This is for us. And I was driving by in my sports car, and I went, wow, look at that. People hanging off the second floor, you know, music blasting out of the windows. I parked my car and never went back to, to Balbo. <laughs> yes, sounds like fun. Yeah, for sure. Oh, so, yeah. It's, it's kind of funny because your Catholic school experience really almost prepared you for the White Panthers, right? Because you, once again, were the only black guy in the White Panthers. Well, yeah, you know, and um, we, um, you know, we were Sunny Good Street, and that's what the name of our commune was. <clears throat> and uh, we go and sit on uh, sit on South University, and people would be driving through, and they'd go to their kids, roll up your windows, but look, I'm going to show you hippies. Look, look at the hippies over there, and they drive. Giving us the peace sign, and we give them the finger and pass it to the shit, you know. And uh, then uh, when John and those guys moved from Trans Love Energies to uh, the White Panther houses, there were these uh, flyers that were posted all over town saying, Panther White is running. And it was like calling for a uh, community meeting at Mark's Coffee House, and I thought, hmm, you know, this is scandalous. I wonder if my dad's behind this madness. But <laughs> I was always expecting he was going to catch me, you know. I wasn't raised to live that way, you know. And uh, we thought those people were uh, racist, you know, and that's what I thought. Yeah, White, White Panthers. Panthers. Yeah, for sure. It's sure, not, sure. It sounds like it sounds like a, a racist version of the Black Panthers, right? Yeah. That's exactly what I thought was going on, you know, so I avoided it. But I snuck over once, and I snuck around the back way because I was pretty stealthy. And uh, the back porch of their houses was where their groupies hung out at, and they were called the Stompers. And they would go to MC5 show. And, I mean, they were these Braless, pantyless, about tight, bell bottom, like hippie chicks that were just these radical. They were like the biker gang of hippie chicks, and uh, you'd be st- you'd be standing there listening to the band, and they walk up and grab your crotch or fucking slobber on you, grab your. Foot, you know? <laughs> what, what is going on? Yeah. So I. Uh, I snuck around the back way. I was going, I got to see what's going on. But they were sewing clothes for the band, for the MC5. And uh, I snuck in the back way. One of them saw me out there in the bushes. And they go, hey, you, come on in. So I went in. I'm tripping on acid. I was tripping from the moment I dropped out of college until years later, you know. It seemed like every day we drop another hit and uh, go get some cookies and milk down at uh, <laughs> very wholesome restaurant. yeah this rest, I call it satellite restaurant and a friend of ours named Jethro managed it and it was like a cafeteria kind of service so we would just get in line and eat everything that we wanted and then when we get over to the cash register Jethro you know if you gave him a bag of pot he charged you like a dollar or something, and that was how we survived for a while there. <clears throat> when we weren't ripping off the frat houses. Uh-huh. So, so the so the white uh, the white panther party was just like it was like in in fellowship with the black panthers, right? It was kind of a similar thing. Yeah, 
Yes, it was. You know, they, um, the Peace and Freedom Conference was something that Bobby Seale and Huey Newton and those guys called for uh, out in California. And John and those guys, John was in prison. And uh, the members of the then Trans Love Energies were trying to um, gather support to get John out of jail. He was uh, arrested and sentenced to nine and a half to ten years for possession of two joints. You know, a lot of weird stuff was going on, you know. At Sunnygood Street, uh, the Ann Arbor murders started happening, and John Norman Collins was roaming around, and co-eds were disappearing. And uh, our house, Sunnygood Street, um, the local narcotics officer was uh, Lieutenant Anderson. Uh, He was always coming over to the houses and, cast in uh, disguises and try to trick us. You know, he'd pretend that he'd come over sometimes dressed like a Vietnam vet who was just back from the war as a draft dodger, or not draft dodger, but an expatriate, you know, that, that just dropped out of the military and wanted to, or he'd be dressed like one of us. And, you know, we had a peak hole and I, he'd knock at the door. Hey, uh, Carl told me to stop by. I said, you guys had some real good <laughs> shit. <laughs> That's funny. Well, something. I'd peek out the peek hole and i go, hey, you guys, Anderson's at the door. Hide the dope. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, all of that was going on. And um, John Norman Collins was a weirdo. And he... I'm kind of skipping like a stone on water here, but this is a whole lot. Uh, and so it started, you know, our peace and love and tranquility was being disturbed because this knucklehead was uh, like a frat boy that was picking up hitchhiking chicks and murdering them. Holy shit. Huh. I don't, yeah, I don't remember that. Yeah. That's okay. Huh. The, it, it, there was a book called The Ann Arbor Murders, uh, and it was about John Norman Collins. And, you know, um, the cops would be just on us because they were sure that it was somebody from our commune that was the Ann Arbor murderer. Mm. And uh, so while that was going on, you know, you got John in jail and the White Panther Party with the energy from the MC5 and the Stompers and all of that stuff. And um, as I was saying earlier, we I found out that those guys were we're cool. Our politics were the same, but the manifestation of it, you know, the way it seemed on the surface was what was awry. And uh, I forget, um, the stompers brought me into the house and I was peeking out of the acid and I went, wow, this is really strange. I've never felt an energy, energy like this before. I'm sitting on the floor in the kitchen and all of a sudden this guy with no shirt on, skin-tight pants, crawls up from the basement, crawls over to me on all four like a dog, and goes, you're the most beautiful black human I've ever seen. And French kisses me. And I mean, <laughs> that was like peace and love and all that stuff. But even at Sunny Good Street, I was the only black member there. And uh, everybody else was you know, having endless sex. And I hadn't been kissed in forever, and definitely by a man, and assuredly not by one on all fours. And it was Iggy, and he hey. French kisses. 
and crawls away into the dining room. And I, I just sat there and vibrated for about an hour, going, "Oh my god!" <laughs> so you made and, uh, so you made out with him. Did you re- did you recognize him at the time? Did you know who he was? You knew who he was. I knew he was from like the Sunday concerts and stuff like that, but I never oh, expected I it. Uh, last time I saw him was at Weber's after the Ron Ashton tribute that he did, and uh, I I went back to wish him a happy birthday and shake hands, and he's like, "Oh, I love it," and and thank him for all of the years of music and yeah. entertainment. He goes, when I left the room, I was told by another friend, he goes, when you left, man, I can't believe what Iggy said. And I said, what did he say? He goes, I owe out to Bailey, Grace Jones, but not really. You know, Iggy's crazy. <laughs> <laughs>
And so, Uh-oh. while you were at the what? house, uh, while you were at the house, didn't you also get a phone call from John Lennon once? Oh yeah. Um, so we we moved from Sunny Good Street. Then things started to become politi- political, you know. And uh, I moved over to South Street. Um, and Diana Auden and a lot of people from Rim Three of the Weathermen um, were friends with the people that lived there. So when the storming of the Gold Coast happened, you know, everybody was going, hey, let's go, let's, the MC5 were playing at that park in Chicago, let's go. But you got to have uh, combat boots and uh, a football helmet because there's going to be trouble. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so we did. We went. And the storming of the Gold Coast happened, you know. So that's uh, the, 68, the 68 Democratic Convention in Chicago. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And um, Mark Rudd and all those people from uh, the, from SDS were there. And, you know, in the park, he's like, you know, up on stage and inciting everybody to come on, let's all get in infinity groups and march down to the Gold Coast and show them what, give them what for. Well, the cops are waiting for us out on the co- coastline there. And we're throwing rocks at those giant skyscrapers and stuff and pulling people out of limos and I was going, man, I'm a little hippie from Ann Arbor. This is a, a bit much. And I told my friend Rick that I went there with, I go, you know, this is not good. We got to get out of here. Those are the cops. You know, this ain't no joke. And uh, so we boot scooted and went over and we were sitting along uh, the shoreline of Lake Michigan. I think that was the lake there. Yep, that's right. Uh, and we're sitting there. And all of a sudden we look over and Mark Rudd, you know, the guy from SDS, him and Tom Hayden and all those guys, had changed his clothes. Now he's not uh, a revolutionary anymore. He had a white shirt and a tie, and he had cut his hair after leading everybody into this assault. <laughs> That's just how tough he was, huh? Oh, yeah. And meantime, back in Ann Arbor, you know, everybody was still fighting to get John out of jail. So when I got back, um, Dave Sinclair came over and had this conversation with me at our house on Felt Street where I met those SDS people at. And he was saying, you know, we need your help. You're part of uh, the real Ann Arbor community and people are alienated by our presence here. But we figure if you, he said, if you could come along, you know, you could help the community and uh, the underground community understand what we're about. And uh, I agree. And from there, from John, um, from Dave's invitation, I moved in with my whole commune. There was like seven of us that all moved in. We moved in on the third floor of the White Panther houses. And I became a member of the Ministry of Culture and we disseminated uh, Ann Arbor Sun, a newspaper, full-color tabloid, and um, organized 67 chapters around the world. Hmm. Um, oh, is that right? Wall. No kidding. Oh, oh, yeah. We had um, 67 chapters you know, as far flung as Auckland, New Zealand, and other strange places. And there would be messages from the Central Committee Um uh, to the general cadre, which was me and mine. And we would take um, instructions from the Central Committee 
and implement them in the community in terms of community work, like uh, the People's Food Co-op and Children's Community Center, where we babysit people's kids, and uh, the Food Co-op, we would uh, collect money and then go into Detroit to Farmer's Market, purchase like bulk uh, foods, bring them back, bag them up, and um, for the equivalent of like $7, we'd be giving people like $30 worth of groceries and stuff, you know. <laughs> and at the same time, talking to them about John's plight and how they could help. And, uh, you know, that was my, that was the political aspect of what we were doing. Meantime, I was a roadie for the op, uh, uh, which was the musical organ for the White Panther Party. And, uh, you know, and we would travel. So it was the up. So it's it's kind of history is kind of written that that MC5 was the sort of musical branch of the White Panther Party, but it was actually the up. Well, the MC5 were there first, and uh, okay, and uh, uh, the commune there in the White Panther commune when it was Trans Love Energies. But then when they got signed to Electro Records, they started doing. They took their advanced cash and bought a bunch of heroin and started. Um, ah. Uh, their, on their path. And the up was still there. The up used to play open shows that the five would play. It would be like uh, the up, the Stooges, MC5. <laughs> and um, we would have like our minister of communications on stage. And they would be talking about John's fight and how people could help by signing petitions, uh, help in marijuana prohibition, hemp petitions. And, uh, and so we were educating people as to the political nature of our existence just by being, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, at, at that time, I wasn't thinking about our title, the White Panthers, and the intrinsic racial implications of said. And, you know, and people were always like, well, don't you realize you're not white? Yeah, I'm a little aware of that, but that's not. <laughs> we're trying to get this man out of jail for doing something that we're doing right now. We're smoking pot while you're assailing me. Uh, uh, but, you know, if they can do that to John for possession of two joints, they can do the same thing to us. Sure. Yeah. And uh, the ministers of communication would be doing that. And as I said before, we had like 67 chapters around the world that um, were going through the same stuff in their own locations. So Hmm. tell us a bit about the John Lennon phone call and about you getting the call from Lennon. Oh, and one of my, one of the things that we had to do, we divided in the communes there. There were three houses that we had. And everybody had things that they had to do. And, you know, you got points for things that were, we called them chart duties. So if you did kitchen duty, that was worth so many points. Office duty was worth so many points. And kid, you know, and you had to have uh, like a total of, I'm grabbing this out of the air, but like 30 points, but you could choose from the different responsibilities in the house, but each person had to have at least 30 hours worth, and that would make sure that everything got done that needed to be done. One of the things that I signed up for all the time was uh, uh, front desk duty, you know, mm-hmm. where he owns and answered the doors, and there was all kinds of weird stuff going on, but it was a lot of fun just sitting there and picking up the phone, and you never knew who was going to 
So it's one day the phone rings and uh, I somebody said, uh, "Hello, this is Yoko Ono, and we uh, we knew that John John was in jail, and we had booked Chrysler Arena, which was built um, during that time, and we were going to be one of the first events there, and it was the Chrysler Arena Freedom Rally, and." Um, you know, all of this energy was like aimed at us, international energy. Some old white guy was on the porch one night and he's pounding at the door. And I, I went to the door and I went, oh, my God, he's foaming at the mouth. I went and told Dave and Dave goes, don't open the door. And the guy's pounding at the door and goes, you house prostitutes and whores, you know, you guys are talking about talking about drugs and sex and rock and roll and well then if you won't let me in then bring me the hemlock like they did Socrates <laughs> and, 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 and going this fucker's out of his gourd don't open the door <laughs> then a couple of days later I'm doing office duty and the phone rang and this voice goes hello this is Yoko Ono and I'd like to speak to Dave Sinclair I can't do Yoko's accent. <laughs> He's fine. It's all good. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I thought, this is bullshit. This ain't no Yoko Ono. And I, I, I made up some name for myself, and I said, this is uh, Dr. Seuss or something, and I hung the phone up. And uh, the phone rings back a couple of minutes later, <clears throat> and... uh. It was John Lennon, and he goes, "Hello, this is John Lennon, and I'd like to speak to the chief of staff of the White Panther Party, Dave Sinclair." And I thought, "Oh my God, that real that wow!" I go running upstairs. I said, "Dave, I think John Lennon's on the phone." He goes, "Patch it in." So I patched the phone call in, and I was John calling. Holy shit! Because. Yeah, you wanted to volunteer to play the Chrysler Arena Freedom Rally in behalf of John. Wow. And he said, I wrote a song, it's a, it's a sweet little ditty, and it goes, it ain't fair, John Sinclair, and it's there for breathing air. Set him free, let him be, let him be like you and me. What more can Judge Colombo do? You got to, got to, got to, got to, got to set him free. And it was just great, to, about 10 for 2. Uh, that he wrote for John. Um, and I passed the phone call through. He had a meeting with Lenny and Dave. And, and then Chrysler Arena, the Freedom Rally happens. And people got word that John was going to play. And all of a sudden, there's like uh, Archie Shep, the Chicago Art Ensemble. Bobby Seale came in with members of the Black Panther Party. Um David Peel, the Lower East Side, it was like everybody was volunteering to come in to bring attention to the fact that John was um, imprisoned, uh, you know, incorrect, not incorrectly, but, you know. Unfairly, yeah, for 10 years. Unjustly, yeah. yeah. Un that was what I was looking for, unjustly. And uh, Lennon had decided he was going to come and support the cause and had recorded this 45, which you can find online. It's called uh, Free John Now. And the night of the concert, I uh, was like, man, I can't believe we're actually doing it. We packed the house. Uh, Chrysler was brand new. We were one of the first events there. 
and we packed it, you know. And I went out to take a break. I'm sitting in the stadium, and I thought, I just need a break for a minute. This is too much. We actually thought about something, planned, worked for it, and it's happening, you know. And I'm sitting in the stadium. It was empty, and it's swirling this really this little tornado started picked up trash on one side of the stadium blew it all around to where I was sitting at and then stopped and dumped this pile of trash next to me and I went okay I'm going back in now <laughs> um, I get you know, I was tripping my brains out too I, I head back in and this limo pulls up and um, all of these people with Beatles albums, it was like the hundreds of people. And I mean, Beatles fans, a lot different. You know, I was used to being on stage and around musicians, but this was like big magic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, it doesn't get much and, bigger. And, yeah. and, and, no, and these people were serious about wanting John to sign their albums and stuff, you know. And I, I was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, so... Um, they get out of the limo. I let them into the dressing area. We go into the dressing room. I had to get John and Yoko in there and then slam the door shut while people are sticking the albums through the crack of the door and crap. Get the door shut, and John goes, you know, you look like a chap I can trust. Here, snort some of this while I teach Yoko the course to the song I wrote last night. <laughs> Holy shit. And, did you did and, you tell her you were Doctor? Did you tell her you were Doctor Seuss? Hey, this is no, the- yeah, right. You know, oh my God, you know, her little diminutive ass. You know, John handed me this vial of coke, and I just scoop a bunch of blow out of there, and I'm tripping on ass, and now I'm fucking cranked up. Oh, and, uh, he goes over and starts teaching uh, the guys from uh, uh, David Pills band. The chords to sisters, oh sisters, where are you now? This stupid Yoko Ono song. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then I walked up on stage, and uh, I was standing there, and Sylvia um, goes, uh, "Hey, would you do me a favor while I go handle something?" And I said, "Yeah." What? And she goes, "Would you walk Stevie on stage?" and put Stevie Wonder's arm in my arm, and I walk Stevie on stage into his keyboard, and I'm thinking, holy Christ, man. <laughs> what is going on? Oh, yeah, John Lennon snorted with him, then walked Stevie on stage after the up the up had played, you know, so I was... If you watch the movie 10 for 2, you can see me dragging speaker cabinets behind uh, Father Berrigan or whoever one of those political speakers were to the foreground. Damn, that's a, that's some story right there. So, so you went you ended up you ended up in prison though, right? At some point. Oh yeah, when uh, um, that night uh, we got a phone call from Marquette where they had locked John up. We um, went to the state capitol once we got enough signatures on uh, helping marijuana prohibition petitions to get a, a, ref, a referendum put on the state ballot for the people of the state of Michigan to vote as to whether or not the marijuana laws were cruel and unjust. And uh, prior to the vote, we sent a bunch of joints to the House and uh, 
in it, um, and it was in these envelopes from Wayne State University with this Ron Crumb cartoon of how to smoke a joint, and uh, it showed a cutaway of, you know, uh, the cartoon cutaway of this guy taking the talk of a joint and then his lungs and then going into his lungs, and then when he exhaled, he was a hippie. You know, and uh, <laughs> so we put that in the envelopes. We had people steal these envelopes from Wayne State. We rolled two joints and did this write up about John, put it in there, and sent it out to all the members of the House of Representatives in the state uh, capitol. And we said, you know, you're home by yourself or you're alone in your car. Here's two joints. Now, you know, it's up to you. Take one, light it up, see how you feel, and then think. Should you be arrested for nine and a half to ten years for this? And uh, we showed up to present the petitions at the state capitol, and we went up to meet with Perry Johnson because he had just transferred John from Jackson Prison to Marquette, which was in the Upper Peninsula. And Lenny and the kids, she had two babies by John. You know, uh, John's in jail. The kids hadn't seen their dad and stuff. And I used to ride up north with her, and uh, we we figured we're going to go present these petitions in the state capitol, but meantime we're going up and talk to Perry Johnson, the head of the Bureau of Prisons, about why John was moved from Jackson to Marquette. And so we got these big school buses, and we all piled onto the school buses, all three houses, and we're driving uh, – up to the Capitol, and then we taped the petitions together and dropped them um, from the rotunda, you know, and uh, went up and create wreak havoc in Perry Johnson's office while he hid in the closet or something. And, uh, <laughs> then the night of the Freedom Rally, though, we got a phone call from John, and uh, the Supreme Court had overturned the marijuana laws as being cruel and unjust. Oh, wow. And it and, and uh, the, the referendum was passed, and and then John was released. Plus, I think I don't know. I think it was twenty-seven other people um, were released from prison on, uh, due to the marijuana laws being cruel and unjust punishment. So we did what we set out to do. Indeed, and I'll never forget. I had these chucka boots, and um, I was so stoned. Um, I was. <laughs> Laying on the line at the Capitol, and I go, Oh God, these shoes are hurting my feet. So I took them off, and then everybody says, Come on, we're going to go up to Perry Johnson's office and give him what for us. So I went in barefoot. And then when it was time for us to leave, when the Capitol security was chasing us and stuff, we all piled back onto the buses, and I left my shoes. We get home. We're all sitting around watching the news footage, and we go, Today at the state Capitol, blah, 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 blah. Johnson clear they do a pan and a shot and they did a shot of my chuckle boots which were uh, red white and blue with a big star on the toes of them and he goes that's the news today from the capitol uh, there my damn shoes are doggone it <laughs> so he so he gets a, he, so he gets out of prison and then you get sent down right for, for dealing or something well, yeah, when John got out, he, uh, you know, he started managing Mitch Ryder and, 
you know, I mean, he had been locked up for a long time and he was just tired. You know, I think he was just tired. You know, it was a whole lot. You know, he had missed mm-hmm. his, the, the birth of his daughter. And sure. Second daughter. He had decided he had had enough and he had, uh, we had this party meeting and he said, well, you know, I've decided I'm going to dissolve the party. You know, we set out to do something and we did it. So now I think everybody should, uh, you know, go back to their various points of departure. And and uh, and so we, we said, okay. So I, at that point, you know, I mean, I had dedicated three to four years of my life to getting him out of jail. It was like, I don't remember how long it was. But so when I returned back to the community, you know, back to the underground, I was left with a need for for cash. So I was selling pot. And then I sold some cocaine, and it turned out to be to an undercover officer. And, uh, you know, uh, Nixon was in office then, and he said, he sent out a directive to J. Edgar Hoover and said, I want something done about those people at 1510, 1520, and 1522 Hill Street. And I want bi-monthly Straight reports. for the president, huh? Oh, yeah. I want bi-monthly reports on my desk in my office as to implementation of this presidential directive. So, um, uh, of course, to me, you know, I was the only black member of the party. And, you know, what I was doing after we dissolved was illegal. But, you know, I wasn't thinking about it like that, you know. I'm sure it was an offshoot of that presidential directive, you know. Mm-hmm. And wound up getting sent to Lexington, the Federal Correctional Institute, um, an experimental prison in Lexington.
and behold, I was walking back from my office one day, and I was walking, you know, this place was like being locked up on the diag, you know. These buildings were built by the DPW, you know, in the 50s and 40s and shit. And uh, no no bars, no no guns, no clubs. It was like a, wow. a medium custody minimum custody facility experimental um billy holiday had been locked up there i actually jammed on billy holiday's pa gene krupa gene krupa's drums were in the basement i found his drums (laughs) and uh oh yeah and uh i was walking back into our unit and i look over and i said Hey, you know, you look, and I said, nah, couldn't be. And I went on up the stairs, and this guy behind me goes, I look like who? I said, you look like Michael Davis from the MC5. He goes, so so what if I am? And it was was Michael. And then a few months after that, Wayne Kramer from the MC5. So me, Mike, and Wayne all were locked up in the same facility. And I know that was all... Uh, due to this directive, you know, uh, Nixon wants something done about those people up there. So was that was that when you decided you wanted to play music yourself? Was when you were in when federal lockup? Yeah, yeah, you know, because music was always the the point of dissemination of you know our ideology, and and I was always interested in music and art, and I thought well, I'm going to learn how to play guitar while being the editor of the newspaper and writing some pretty scandalous stuff, too. Um, and uh, and then I was locked up with Michael Davis, the bass player, and Wayne Kramer, the guitar player from the MC5. So upon release in 1978, uh, I started my own band. Um, and me, Mike and Wayne both were released prior to me because... Um, under the NARA Act, the Narcotics Addiction and Rehabilitation Act from the 50s and shit, if you declared yourself an addict, you uh, the, the sentencing severity chart was lessened for an addict than it was for a profiteer. Um, hmm. And um, so I wound up doing more time than those guys did because they came in as full-blown addicts. I see, yeah. And I and I refused to declare myself as an addict, which meant I um I had to do more time. They did two years, I did four. Hmm. Um then when I got out, um a friend of mine uh gave me his marking uh stamp gave me his company and I uh was working for him while <clears throat> while on parole and then uh one New Year's, me and the lady I live with said, I wonder what Mike's doing. So we drove down to Detroit, picked up Michael Davis, and Michael moved in with us and helped me on my beginnings. I went back to Washington Community College, took some music classes, found three other guys that wanted to play with me, and I began my career as the lead singer of the Cult Heroes. So this was 1978 or something like that, 79? Um, 78. 78, okay, cool. It's it's funny, right? Because when you were away, while you were in prison, the landscape of music changed dramatically. Where the punk rock thing happened while you were in 
way you're inside. So was that like when you put the band together, were you thinking you were going to be a punk rock band or were you just thinking like a rock and roll band and you just kind of got swept up in the like with the rest of those bands? A rock and roll band, but, uh, you know, one of our first reviews, I forget, we were playing CBGBs, and somebody went, uh, Hiawatha Bailey uh, and his band, The Called Heroes, Glitter Punk, what was it, Glitter? A combination of Glitter Punk and Rockabilly. And I'm <laughs> thinking, what? Yeah, see, I don't hear any Rockabilly. <laughs> I don't know where he got the Rockabilly at. That guy's name was Kirby. Uh, it was in Variety magazine, and um, we we were just playing rock and roll straight ahead, three chord rock and roll with great political political lyrics, which is what I still do, you know. And you were you sure. were singing, or you were playing guitar, or you doing both? Singing, singing, singing. Okay, okay. So, yeah. I've I've heard him described. I've heard Hiawatha. I've seen you or heard you described as like the black Iggy Pop. But the fact of the matter is, you're like at least a foot taller than Iggy Pop, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, he's shorter. And plus, you know, people, um, I don't mind the kind of, I don't mind the comparison because maybe he's one of my heroes. But, sure. um, you know, I, I, to me, it was just reclaiming the station that I left when, uh, you know, when I was incarcerated and stuff. You know, I came back to claim that that was ours. Three chord rock and roll with lyrics that have political import. So you, was, so you mentioned CBGBs. How was playing at CBGBs? I mean, that that place is legendary now. Obviously, um, how, how how did you find it? Um, I just told the guys once we started the band. That was nineteen seventy eight, and we had been together like um, eh, not even a year. And I said, well, you know, if we're going to be successful, we got to go play CBGBs because that's where everybody plays. So we hopped in the car, myself and my drummer, and we drove to New York and uh, with a little demo tape on cassette. We got there the first night. Uh, we went over to CBGBs, and there was uh, Deborah Harry and um, Chris Stein and um, guys from the Ramones and... Um, they're all nodding on heroin and shit. Mm. And the police, it was the police's uh, first U.S. appearance. And uh, I'll never forget, Sting was really pissed off because somebody was sitting right in front of the stage nodding out on blow on, on heroin. <laughs> <laughs> And he kicked him, kicked him in the head. And goes, you know, man, we we came all the way here from England, and you're gonna blah blah blah. blah. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> the next day, we had this meeting with Hilly, Crystal. Yep. Uh, I forget that guy. Oh, Jeff. This guy named Jeff Magnum was. Uh, yeah, from Dead Boys. The, oh yeah, the bass player from Dead Boys. Yeah. Yeah, he was doing stage management and stuff for CBGBs and. Uh, um, well, maybe it wasn't Jeff Magnum. It was another Jeff because I, I, yeah, no, not that bass player. He was from Jersey, and uh, so he, he goes, "I'm telling you, Hilly's a nutcase, and uh, we're gonna go up. We're gonna meet him. He's not gonna pay any attention to you, but um, just do what I tell you to do, and, I, and he's gonna, and I'll get you a gig." So. We go in, and uh, he's going, oh, you guys are from Detroit? And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, oh, no, don't call me sir. He goes, you know, everybody thinks Detroit's tough, but you ever been mugged on the subway? And I'm like, uh, no. 
And he goes, well, stand up. I'll show you what to do if you ever get mugged on the subway. And then Jeff, like, just do it. Just fucking do it. And Ely was um, on a hot plate. He was cooking his steak. And uh, I'm like, man, I'm so tired. Just fucking tell us yes or no. And he makes me get up. And then he goes, come on, now rush me. And I went, what? He goes, so I rushed towards him. And he goes, no, man, come on, you're from Detroit. Rush me like you want to hurt me and take my money. And so I rush him, and he does some weird uh, karate kind of move, kind of old man thing, and bounces me on my ass. And, and he goes, see, that's what you do. And you guys from Detroit aren't that tough, are you? <laughs> and he goes, he looks at Jeff, and he goes, book him, man, give him a gig. And Alan's cool. And so we laugh. I eat the next Saturday night at CBGB's with our eight tunes. And uh, that was our New York gig, our first New York gig. Now, were you, we, when, were you headlining or, or did you play with somebody else? Were you, were you warming up for somebody well, else? Well, it turns out, it was like, you know, four sets at a night. So whomever headlined the first set, there'd be nobody there. And then whoever the second, well, our place in the four sets that were played that night was prime because uh, just because of the, the lay of the cards, you know, mm -hmm. I think the third of the four sets of the four sets and we were the last band to play the third of the four sets, which would have been sort of like the opener for the headliner of the night. So it turned out to be great. And that guy Kirby from uh, from Variety Magazine was there. Uh, uh, the Calderos from Detroit featuring blah, blah, blah. You know, I named the guys in the band. And he goes, very promising duo. But I thought, wow, we're in Variety Magazine with eight tunes. <laughs> that was all we had was eight songs, you know? And it was cool. No, that's a hell of a story. That's great. So, that did you go back? Beginning. Did you did you play CBGBs multiple times, or was that did you go somewhere else yeah, after that? Played, yeah, we went back and played again. We played Max's uh, Kansas City too, and um, and we played Maxwell's Hoboken Ferry over to Maxwell's, opening up for the Modern Lovers. Um, all those guys from the uh, Dead Boys, Cheetah, Cheetah Chrome really was helpful. You know, oh. uh, he lost us a bunch of equipment and stuff, and he um, and I went back for um, uh, with Ron Ashton, Scott Morgan, Dennis Tech, and uh, Mike Watts from Iggy's band, and oh. we played. Uh, Polish National Hall and uh, Greg Street in uh, in Brooklyn years later, and uh, that was yeah. I forget how I was tying that in, but yeah, we played we played like quite a few New York shows. Now I was going to ask you about I was I was going to ask you about the Ramones because I know you had some relationship with Dee Dee, but I, I was I'm always curious. Neil and I are both huge Ramones fans, and we saw him play a couple times towards the. I, you know, we both saw him play live, but we never met him personally. So we're always fascinated by the the Ramones, the guys who were the Ramones. You know. Well, when uh, Dee Dee 
Dee Dee, um, we had played a gig here in town. We opened up for Limited to Second Chance, where chances are. And we're at this after party, and um, a limo pulls up, and Dee Dee gets out with Joey, and he, he goes, Hi, Alpha. This is Dee Dee. And I went, Oh, I know who you are. And he goes, um, Joey's, Joey's took mushrooms, and he's really high. Take his hand. And hold on to his hand, and you take care of him all night long. <laughs> and I'll limo back to pick him up tomorrow. But you, if, I'm going to kick your ass if if, you, if he misses the gig tomorrow. <laughs> and it, it, it was he was like this little baby with his. He's really taller than I am too, but he held my. <laughs> he told him to hold my hand all night long, so I held his hand. <laughs> They're all jamming and down in the basement making that god awful noise that Ned and those guys made. And, and I said, "Want to have some fun, Joey?" And he goes, uh, "Sure." And uh, we go. I step around the corner, and those guys start like you know, wackadoodling, wackadoodling, you know, trying to show off. Me. And then I step deeper in, and I pull Joey by the hand, and they saw Joey, and drumsticks went flying, and guitars <laughs> lost their mind. <laughs> Wham, stop. And then we go back outside. And my sister Gwen, 
who's in heaven now, had come to the gig and she showed up at the after party. And um, I said, Jerry, come on, I want I want you to meet my sister. So I took over and he goes, she's the most beautiful black woman I've ever seen. He actually, you know. And then, uh, then shortly after that, Dee Dee quit the band. And a friend of mine said, you know, we're at this after party, and aren't you, are you going to come over? And I said, no, you guys are boring. He goes, well, Dee Ramone's here, and he keeps asking about you. And I'm like, what? Now, you just, I thought he was just trying to trick me to, you know. Mm-hmm. So I went over, and I look up, when I walk in the front door, I look upstairs, and uh, there's Dee Dee at the top of the stairs looking like a scared little rabbit, and he goes, oh, my God, I'm so glad you're here to save me. These people are crazy. <laughs> and uh, I, he comes running down the stairs, and I took him back over to my place uh, where we lived at then. And from that moment, for the next two to three years, that was after he quit the Ramones. And he just remembered how much fun he had here in Ann Arbor. And uh, he, I, wherever I would live at, we were always getting evicted. And whenever we would get evicted, Dee would be like, we'd get a new place. And Dee would be two doors down in an apartment or, you know, across the street and over. Yeah, you know, for about for about two years there. He was my butt, hmm. you know, a difficult person to get along with. And he would always come over in disguise. And he'd knock <laughs> at the door. When you say disguise, what do you mean? What, do you have like a false beard or something? A dress, like wearing a dress. <laughs> he, he would wear some disguises, okay, you guys. He'd come over dressed like an old fisherman sometimes. <laughs> sometimes a ninja outfit. Or just, he, he was a clown. Well, not a clown. He didn't think he was being a clown, but... To me, he would crack me up with this shit, and okay. nobody knew it was Didi, you know. And I knew it was because he not, he had this spe- special knock that he would knock on my door, and I'd peek out and go, "Oh my God, it's Didi!" So I'd let him in, and uh, we, you know, hi, Walter. I'm taking you out for coffee. You're not going to drink any beer. We're going to have coffee. <laughs> So we take a walk into this all-night restaurant on Main Street, Manika's, and uh, uh, early in the morning, I'm like, oh, my God, Didi, I don't drink coffee, but I'll do whatever you want. So we're trucking, and um, somebody stopped me, and we're halfway there. And they go, man, I heard you were hanging out with Didi Ramon. Is that true? And Didi was standing right there. And uh, I go, well, yeah, sort of. And they go, man, I'd love to meet Dee. You think you could arrange that? And I'm like, and Dee Dee would slowly whip off the scarf that he had wrapped around his head. And then he'd strip that. He'd just take off his disguise and be standing there as Dee Dee, you know, in his deck shoes and his tight black pants and <laughs> leather jacket costume. And then he'd look at him and go, oh, my God, it's Dee Dee Ramon. He'd go, fuck off. Come on, we got to go get coffee. You know. I mean, he drove me nuts for a while, and that fucker could smoke some pot. Okay, he wasn't he wasn't doing drugs. He wasn't doing heroin or coke, and he hated it when he'd find out I was. He'd go, hey, "You're going to be a good Iowaf, aren't you?" And I go, "Whatever, did he?" Hmm. Yeah, that's funny. Didn't I read somewhere uh, that he that he liked to knock people off bikes or something? He didn't like people on bikes. He um. 
I don't know where you read to that, but it's true. He came over to the house one day and he was like, oh, hey, Walter, it's Douglas. You know, when he was out of character, he goes, Douglas Calvin, this isn't Dee this is Douglas Calvin. <laughs> I go, okay, Dee And he goes, I told you this is Douglas. I go, okay, Douglas. And I let him in and he goes, you're supposed to be a revolutionary. And I said, well, I am. Why, what? He goes, I don't know. Do people do it because they know I'm D.E. Ramon and my nerves are shot? Or is it just because they're fucking evil Hebrews? <laughs> I, I, I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'm walking through town. It's a lovely day. You know, I'm just walking and I'm into myself. And they whiz past me on those fucking bicycles. He goes, everybody in this town and their fucking bicycles. And I said, Didi, this is a college town, and that's people's cars, you know? He goes, well, if you're a revolutionary, I want you to help me do something about it. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, we got to eradicate Ann Arbor this bicycle threat. <laughs> I said, Didi, you can't do that. And he goes, yeah, you're not a revolutionary. And, and he got mad at me and he left. And a couple of days later, he comes back over. Hi. Knock, 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 knock. It's Gigi. Let me in. So I let him in. Uh, he goes, come. I have to show you what I've done. I took care of it. And I said, took care of it? What do you mean? He goes, you'll see. We get over to his apartment. He had stolen about 12 bicycles and disassembled them and made this art sculpture. <laughs> In the back courtyard, <laughs> he goes, "You wouldn't help me, so I did it myself." Like, You're gonna get arrested, which he did a couple of times. Wow, that's some story. That's some it. story right there. That's amazing. I mean, he was doing always doing nutty shit like that, and um, I said another time we were going over to. The Nectarine, my friend uh, Bob Tickle was uh, the, the manager of the Necto, and he heard Didi was in town, and he goes, Hi, are you really hanging out with Didi Ron? And I said, Yeah. And I said, I need help. This guy is driving me crazy. So he goes, Well, come on over. And it was Asian night. Um, I think Tuesdays were Asian night when, uh, you know, if you're an Asian student at U of M, there was special cover charge and shit. And, uh, we went over, and there was a waiting line to get in upstairs. And Didi's like, he goes, you have to be very good. I walked in, I said, what are you talking about? He goes, the Vietnamese mafia is here. He goes, <laughs> oh, but I don't know about them from New York. Be very, be very good, Hiawatha, and do exactly as I tell you. And Nickel uh, was waiting for us to show up. We're heading up the stairs to the nectarine, and some one of those guys said something to Didi that he didn't like. And he goes, see, I told you they were trouble. And he had these ninja stars for a belt buckle, and Didi slung like three ninja stars and stuck them in the wall of the stairs towards the entrance to the nectarine. And I was like, Didi. Uh, we got in, Tickle shut the night down, and... Um, and we went down in the basement, and he had started a band called Didi's Chinese Dragons. Right. And uh, um, he, we went in the basement, and he got this 
uh, Tico gave him this box to spray paint and then the sled <sighs> he spray painted this giant dragon so we're down underneath the bar fucking getting asphyxiated on spray paint and shit oh god a lot of fun it <laughs> sounds like it but, sounds like he was dangerous to hang around with <laughs> oh really dangerous because you know he would just he was socially and uh you know inexperienced and you know he had led such a cloistered existence from the beginning to his expatriation as a, a free person you know and 
came to me for aid and assistance. And hmm. one night we were going in the nectarine to see somebody play, and he um, there was this girl who I knew because her brother was one of my roadies once. And she saw me with Didi, and she was like, oh, my God, Didi Ramon, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I introduced her to him, and I went on in the bar. She wanted me to try and get her in, but she was underage. And um, I, I, I said, I can't. You know, this is my job. This is where I work at. I can't do that. So him and her left. And um, for about three days, Didi come over and I was thinking, well, I don't know what's going on right now, but I'll see him in a minute. And I got a phone call. It turns out her mom was like the mayor of Garden City or something. And she gleaned my phone number from somebody and called me and told me that the last place that her daughter was seen was at the Necto with me and, um, and Didi and that she knew what I did for a living and, and, and that if I didn't get in touch with her daughter and have her daughter check in. She was going to bust me and do whatever she had to do to, to rescue her daughter. So I had Dee's number at the Chelsea in New York. And I called him, and um, uh, he wasn't there. And she answers the phone, and I said, um, you know, how are things going? And she goes, oh, man, I really wanted to thank you for introducing to me, introducing me to my hero, the, you know, the Dee Dee from the Ramones. I'm so, and I said, well, you know, I got something to tell you. And she goes, I said, are you enjoying yourself, trying to, like, soften the blow? And uh, she goes, well, I haven't seen any of New York. He told me that he didn't want me to leave his room here to Chelsea because just like the rest of his girlfriends from Ann Arbor, if if I went and hung out, New York was going to turn me into a lesbian like it did his last. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I said, oh, yeah. I said, do you realize that you've been kidnapped and you're being held captive? And she goes, oh, great. I, she goes, anything I ask for, he just runs out and he brings it back. He's bought me all these expensive designer clothes. And I, uh, remember He's stealing them. And wanted to go to a movie. And uh, he went out to the electric, uh, electronic district and he came back with this TV and a VCR. And, um, but he didn't know how to hook it up and he was trying to hook it up and he said he had been jerked and really mad. And are you guys still there? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he got really mad and he pitched it out the window and he said he was going to go down there and somebody up. And I said, look, call your mother. And I said, watch out for his dark side. And she went, well, okay, I love you and thank you. And about, about an hour or two later, I got a phone call and, uh, it was D.D. and he went, Hiawatha, are you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah we're here, yep. Uh, and he went, Hiawatha, this isn't D.D., this is Douglas Calvin talking. <laughs> and how dare you say I have a dark side? I'm not selling marijuana to, to little school children, and I don't have a dark Right. And I and he goes, Don't start crying because you always cry when I try and punish you. And um 
And I was crying. I go, Didi, you don't understand. You know, I'm not going back to jail because you picked up some underage groupie. You know, I didn't say that. He wouldn't let me. (laughs) He goes, well, I just wanted to tell you that you don't exist. Oh, jeez. What? He goes, there is no Hiawatha. There is no (laughs) Gary Rasmussen. There is no Scott Morgan. There is no MC5. There is no, and he goes, don't call my beautiful home here at the Chelsea Hotel ever again. <laughs> and he hung up on me, and that was the last time I spoke to him. Oh, wow. Well, and I found out of... a few months. <laughs> no, say that's, kind well, of a, found... that's kind of an unfortunate story, yeah. Well, that's Dini. Yeah. And I found out months later he married some girl who went um, out to California and talked to her and going to the store for him. And while he, she was gone, he shot up for one last time. And that was after they had been inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. he, figured, he figured, I'm done now. I made it. He knew he was so fucked up from his drug excesses when he was here anyway. He was always talking to me about never, ever doing drugs again. That kind of hard drug anyway. <laughs> so I I think he told her to go. And he had made up in his mind he was leaving here. Oh, dear, dear. And it was, it was right after Joey died, too. So he probably felt damage from that, too. Yeah, the three, the three of them died pretty pretty quick within about a three-year period there. I think the three of them died. Yeah. Because Johnny wasn't too far behind. Nope, same thing happened with Rock, Action, and Ron from the Stooges. Yeah, yeah, Ron, that's right, Ron. Boy, he was he was an interesting cat too. So let me ask you, let me ask you something a little bit off the beaten path. You've been very generous with your time, and we really appreciate it. I love these love these stories of the old days. And like I said, it's interesting because you kind of went through two like real distinct eras, you know, like the hippie stuff and the punk rock stuff, and kind of saw it all, right? Um, oh yeah, I'm still. Go ahead. How did you? Uh, so I I know you only briefly through my uncle Tim, who went to college in Ann Arbor in the in the eighties at U of M. How did you and my uncle Tim uh, get to know one another? Um, I was doing independent shows, you know, uh, using my expertise from the White Panther days and stuff, and bringing that forte into play with all of the punk rock bands that were coming out. Timmy was a going to the U of M and had a band called the Mortals. And yep, I got their I got their forty fives, yep. And um, you know, I was always trying to bring people into the fold like I was brought into the fold. And if they were cool enough, they oh, you know, people were like, Man, what do we gotta do? Like that stupid guy from the Necros, Barry from the Necros and stuff. <laughs> I love the Necros. <laughs> um, Going around tearing down our posters and shit. Oh, you know, that and right? I had a, well, yeah, because he thought we represented old school rock and roll, and you know he was into that thrash stuff and sure, sure, uh, hardcore punk stuff, yeah. And so he would follow me around, always pestering me about playing with us. And I said, well, you know, all you got to do is go to the proper channels, give me a cassette of what you guys sound like. I'll listen to it. And if it's bookable, I'll book you guys and we'll, uh, we'll put some gigs together. And uh, I was uh, um, 
digressing here a little bit. We were I had a club. I uh, lived across the street from the VFW Hall on Liberty Street, and I was running a club in the basement of it. Um, mm. With this old Vietnam vet, and, uh, there was a rental facility down there, so I started putting on shows there. And uh, those guys wanted to play the Necros and. Whole Bob pulled me in after I had to open up first. And then, you know, there were rules. You know, this ain't punk rock. This is downtown Ann Arbor. <laughs> they had spray painted necros all over the walls in the dressing room. And Bob mm. was furious. You know, and he was like, I want to let me, I got to show you something. He goes, You know, I never liked niggers before until I met you, but. You know, I'm going to show you <laughs> an understanding wall. guy, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know. And he, he goes, let me show you what they wrote on the walls. Look at that. I would never write anything like that on the wall. They probably did it because you're black. And I said, bye, bye. Oh, I thought it said Negro. <laughs> oh, yeah. got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said, this Negroes, not Negroes. And he goes, well, I don't care. I don't call people that, you know, no more. I used to, but I don't anymore. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. So I made Barry and those guys come back, and they had to clean the walls and the dressing room uh, down. That's great. But see, when I was playing with Timmy, I booked this show called The Snowball at the Union Ballroom. And it was all of the bands that we had played with, and I thought, we're going to relive what the MC5 and the Stooges and the Up used to do. You know, I was there with the Up when uh, Danny Fields came to sign the Stooges, and or came to sign uh, Scott Morgan and the Rash, and heard the Stooges. And when he heard the Stooges play, he asked me if I had any change. He wanted to make a phone call. He went out and called the record label. And um, instead of working with the Rationals, he signed the Stooges that night. And uh, (laughs) so I wanted to relive those days. And I was booking shows there, and Timmy... Um, another band called the Jims, um, Johnny, Ed, and Mike, um, the Jims, which I thought that was a great way to personify their band. And uh, so we all played uh, at the Union Ballroom, and Timmy just became my spoon coon. He was just so cool, and he became an ally. <laughs> and we've been buddies ever since. Oh, that's excellent. Well, and I know he shot, and I, I don't know if there's two different, so there's been some, actually some attempts to make a, a film about your life because you've, you've, you've had one of those lives, man. You've, you've really yeah. seen a lot of things that, like I said, you, you, you've got stuff that's interesting to punk rockers. You got stuff that's interesting to hippies. And I think, uh, I don't know where that's at. I, I don't, I know at one point there was, I don't know if that was Tim that was, I know he was trying to do it. And there was somebody else trying to do it, but I think that's a story worth telling, man. I think, I think that, uh, would be really cool if that could come to fruition. Well, um, Jeff, this guy who's actually been interrupting our interview here from New York a couple of times so when we disconnected, that was Jeff calling. Ah. And he came and, came and uh, you know, filmed years ago. And it was uh, the song Hiawatha. And, um, that's right, that's right, the song what, Hiawatha, that's right. And one of the times when Timmy was back, um, Timmy was doing some filming, and we were doing the same thing, and Jeff happened to be in town, and the two of them met, and uh, Jeff was like, well, you know, I have exclusive, I said, nobody has exclusive anything, you know, the more the merrier, you know, we we should all do this, you know, and uh, 
shut the school. Well, you like him better than you like me, dude. I've known him for fucking thirty years or something, you know. Yeah, I say uh, probably closer yeah. to forty. Yeah, and yeah. Jeff was like, well, yeah. you know, what would you think if, if I challenge? I I could kick his ass, and I, I Timmy stood up, <laughs> never standing up, and Jeff went, well. You know, uh, yeah, you better back that train up, buddy. <laughs> That's funny. We're not talking about young people here, Neil, you know. We're talking about... Yeah, like I've, met, I've met your uncle, Tim. Yeah, I've met Tim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we actually... Old, old, old dogs barking over a bone, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but it's, it's funny. We uh, Neil got to meet uh, Uncle Tim this summer. We all went for a boat ride and drank a bunch of beer and actually got busted by the fuzz while yeah, we were we out on the river. So. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's pretty, it pretty, pretty funny. So I I'll tell you what. Him. Oh no, go ahead. I just saw Timmy this summer too again when he was here to visit. We I forget what we went and did. We did something again this summer. Went out for dinner or something. You know, he's doing so, okay. I love my. Yeah, he's he's doing all right. He's you know he's he's uh, got some health issues, but I think he's actually I think he's doing well. I think he's doing doing well in the circumstances. Know. And so, I told him to, uh, we we will be okay. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, exactly. Well, I was going to say, the, the the last question I really wanted to ask you, and this is a hard question, man. I, I hope it doesn't, I hope it's not too hard. But, you know, you guys, until like pre-COVID, you guys were still playing at least, at least doing like your birthday show, or you guys would always play in Ann Arbor. Like, Call Heroes are kind of, we're kind of still an active band. Of course, then you had COVID, and I know you've had some health issues of your own, but do you do you think the cult heroes will ever be able to take the stage again? Well, you know, it's like when I got sick, I, I just thought I needed a break, you know. But uh, <laughs> And, you know, that kind of diagnosis makes you kind of, you know, it's like when people say that kind of stuff to you, and you got cancer, it's like, what the fuck are you saying? Yeah, how could that be? Uh, yeah. Right, you know, and um, everything seems to be working. All of the, you know, therapies that I'm going through sure. seem to be working. But, you know, it's a whole lot of rosy being the lead singer of a rock and roll band, especially when you take the front, uh, you know, the vanguard position that that we are in or have been in. That's why I, I had already started limiting stuff down prior to finding out about that. Sure. So I was playing once a year because it was easier than taking a band on the road and getting continually evicted from houses and blah, blah, blah. Sure, sure. But now I'm getting my strength back. Actually, last on uh, New Year's Eve, I did a, a walk on with my friend Brendan's band, uh, Magpods. Oh, dear. Okay. Second. Yeah, at the blind pig on New Year's, I hopped up and did a tune with them. So I'm thinking now as the year progresses here, we'll see. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, it's funny because I asked him when I see him. I usually see him. I saw him at Christmas time, actually. You know, his folks, my grandparents, actually, they're getting pretty up in years. So we, he doesn't, he visits a little more often than he used to, you know. Um <laughs> But I always ask him, how's Hiawatha doing? And you know what he says? He says he's doing real well. And he's doing surprisingly well. I'm like, oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear it. So I'm glad he's he doing well. And I, I think uh, it's been quite a few years, Well, with, like I said, with the COVID and all the other stuff. So it'd be, uh, I think it'd be a lot of people would love to see you up there again. Well, we will. 
we will eventually, you know. And if you guys need more of this, we can do it more or whatever, you know. If I'll tell you what, man, I think we could easily do a part two if you uh, – because I would love to just – I think we could do an hour or two just talking about all the people you rubbed elbows with because I'd yeah. love to get your impression on some of these people. But by the same token, I don't want to keep you all night tonight. So, But, yeah, yeah if you yeah, – we... We need to hop off because yeah, I, I don't know what I did, but somehow I bounced myself off my Facebook page and I'm trying to get back on it. It's driving me. <laughs> I've I got like six friends on there and, uh, you know, these two invisible meta Facebook fucking police. I yeah, don't know terrible. what I did. Yeah, but I, it's terrible. Well, feel, feel free to contact me. Dude, and thank, we, we will so do that, much. but. But yeah. yeah, thanks, man. It was really it was really nice catching up with you. And I'll tell you what, we'll uh, be in touch when we put this thing up, and we'll make sure you get a copy of it so you can listen to it. Like I said, we'll it, it's 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 real simple. Basically, we'll just kind of we're gonna add some uh, we're gonna add some of your songs into the mix. Just kind of put, the, great. put so the songs in, we'll record an intro. Uh, well, what I think is cool is because I, I think our listeners are not young people. Like most, most of the people who listen to us are like older guys, forties, fifties. But I think, I think a lot of people might not be aware of what you were doing. So I think it'd be real cool to introduce you to a little different audience. So yeah, I look, super I look interesting. It. Yeah. It's been super interesting for sure. Yeah. God bless you guys. Just let me know how I can help. Okay. Appreciate you got it. it, man. Hey, thanks so much for your time. It was a lot. Of, it was nice getting to know you. One of these days, if you, if you were able to do a birthday show or something this year, I'm going to ride over with Tim and we'll, uh, I'll I'll buy you a beer in person. All power to the people, right on, right on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Sounds good. Hey, man, you have a good Sunday night. We'll talk to you later on. All right, bye-bye. Thank All you. Right, Thank See you ya. so much. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that as much as we did. You, of course, can get a hold of us our normal spots, punk till I die 77 at Gmail. Send us a message on the Facebook group. You know, I I, I love digging into these the roots of punk rock, and I hope you enjoyed the journey with us. And, We'll smell you later, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Punk rock. I'll know that was just an incredible story. I think from the you know from the yeah. deep south to uh, going to CBGBs and and playing in Ann Arbor with yeah. uh, with Dee Dee. So there you go. Yeah. Um, thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, and uh, stay free. And we'll smell you later. Okay, that brings us to the end of another show. Hope you enjoyed it. Remember, keep a little mark in your heart, and we'll be back the same mark time, same mark channel. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Ah, ha, ha. Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good What a load of old shit. Thank you, fuck you, bye, boom.